0: Finding friends, sorry, and building friendships in our broken world. Um, it rhymes a little, you know. Um, so today we're talking about growing up. And I don't intend any kind of accusation here, like that we're not grown ups or anything like that. Um, but the memory that the imperative statement, grow up, Kara, conjures for me um, is as a child, anytime I was walking through like a Walmart, or the mall, like, with the department store with my dad. And I was evidently not great at being aware of my surroundings. And um, apparently, like, I was... I was just, like, careening wildly through the stores and needed my father on a very regular basis to put his big hand on my little neck and shoulders and steer me through the crowd and help me to navigate this public space where there are a lot of other people that I was in danger of crashing into at any moment. I needed him there to guide me through this environment that I wasn't able to navigate on my own. I have kids now, and it is incredible, their ability to not notice other people. So we went to uh, Mexican food the other day, and just the two of them, with their tiny little bodies, were able to block the hallway leading to the bathrooms, and the entrance, and the hostess stand, and get in the way of servers, like, piled down with plates of sizzling fajita toppings. (laughs) Like, so I find myself putting my hand on the back of their neck and saying, be aware of your surroundings, you know, and, like, pulling them through, and, like, I I am my father. I just am. So there's no malice in it from them or from me. It's just a skill that they have yet to develop. And I would really like them to do so without, like, a spilled tray of delicious tacos and margaritas getting involved. <laughs> so cute story, Carol, but what does this have to do with friendship? The same way that kids learn to be aware of their environment in order to navigate successfully in, um, in that environment without crashing into other people, we've got to understand ours. We've got to understand the times that we live in and the places that we live in and the pressures that are influencing us and are influencing the people who would make great candidates to be friends with. Um, because if we don't understand some of the things that are going on, like that doesn't make it go away. It just makes it difficult for us to relate with and connect with other people. And it leaves us all feeling really lonely. And here's the rub. In recent generations, because of technology, like philosophical shifts in sociology are changing so much more rapidly than they used to. So if you think about 200 years ago, a mother could teach her daughter to write letters to her friends. Exactly the same way way that her mother taught her exactly the same way that her mother taught her. Like, they had that. But my grandma doesn't know how to use Facebook. Um, and my poor kids, like, I learned what Snapchat was from, like, an article I read on the news. <laughs> like, like what is this new app that these newfangled things? And then I've discovered since then, like, there's a thing called TikTok and I'm just, like, I'm already, like, roadkill on the information highway. Just, like, not giving up. Like, I'm, I'm having to, like, take the courses for parents like, beware of these things for your kids, because I don't know, because the way that they have to interact with their friends is so radically different than the way that I interact with, um, with mine, or the way that I have interacted with mine when I was their age. About 10 years ago, a bunch of us here at the Vineyard read a book called The Trouble with Paris, and we've got a screenshot of this amazing graphic design on the cover of this book it was khaki and garish even then in 2008 when it was written but the contents of the book I think have really held up and we do have a copy in our lending library or you could borrow my copy I really recommend it um and I went to revisit these concepts and I found that like yeah this is this is still some good stuff so this is by an author his name is Mark Sayers he's an Australian pastor And he talks about a concept called hyperreality. And maybe you were around when a bunch of us read this book kind of together, like, in past days of the vineyard, and so uh, I, let us be reminded. And if you've never heard about it before, I'm going to explain what hyperreality is now, and then we're going to talk about how that affects our friendships. Before we get into all that, because I'm not sort of starting with the Bible passage at the beginning, which is usually my cue to pray, like God's word. Let us pray. I have these little liturgical things stuck in there. Let's go ahead and pray now, so that we can be open to what the Lord wants to tell us. So, if you join me in prayer, Lord, we live in a complex world. And I know that you do not back away from complexity. Complicated things don't worry you. They don't give you anxiety, and they don't stress you out. So I just ask that you would figuratively put your hands on the back of our neck and our shoulders and kind of steer us through what's going on in our world now, like how are we put together as a country, and how that impacts our friendships and the way that we make friends and the way that we build those relationships. God, I just ask that we could come to you with open hearts and that you would really speak to us about what's going on in our lives personally and on an individual level, and that you'd also just bind us together, draw us together as a community, so that we can really feel like palpably the friendship in this room that's available from you and with each other. We ask for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, hyper reality. Um, this was a, t- a term coined by a French philosopher, 20th century French philosopher named Jean Baudrillard. I practiced that really hard. And um, hyperreality refers to a changing relationship between what's real and what isn't, particularly a changing relationship between images and objects. So um, I was actually, like, eavesdropping on a conversation with um, an art history major and another artist <laughs> last week, and they were talking about how, you know, like, we used to be, um, just how, like, art has changed and, like, the expression of, like, representing reality. And then after all of the painting that they were talking about, which is really interesting, you know, we got photography, and it started out pretty lousy. Like, I think we've all seen, like, just, like, kind of the... the the unflattering pictures of unsmiling people. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, the ladies back in the 1850s did not know how to contour. And (laughs) neither do I, but... They also didn't, and their photos their cameras weren't helping them, and um we we have like images, but the image was less than the object. it wasn't the same, like you knew you were looking at a picture. it wasn't totally realistic, and then cameras got a little bit better, and we started doing movies, and it's it was like you're it's like you're in the room with the actors, and as technology changed and got better, then we started seeing a thing where the image became better than the object. The image became like an object in and of itself. And so like the classic example of this would be a photoshopped model. You know, a woman goes into a, studio and they first they change everything about the way that she looks with hair and makeup and lighting Um, I think my favorite quote from a YouTube video I saw recently was if the men find out we can rearrange the bones of our faces it's over for us talking about how contour really changes your appearance and you can give yourself sharp cheekbones and you know thin noses and all those crazy things oh my gosh to be a teenager these days trying to figure out makeup for the first time. I don't know how our young women are doing it. Um, so, uh, So first they do that and then they take a bunch of pictures and like they've got the fan that blows her hair and they do all those things and then they take that image and they put it in a computer and they radically alter this woman into like an alien with a long thin neck and bigger eyes and a smaller nose and they even up her ears and they just do all kinds of things that plastic surgery could never accomplish and so then the a billboard that goes up on the side of the road that you see, and that I see, and that a 14 year old girl sees and says, I want to look like that pretty lady has nothing to do with what the actual model looks like. You could pass her on the street and not notice her at all, even as you're captivated by the image on the screen, because the image itself is like a new object. So what we have, it's like we have these things that are better than the real thing. Other examples of this, um, Jean Baudrillard, he uh, he visited like Disneyland and Las Vegas, you know, where they have like, you can see like a little Statue of Liberty in Las Vegas, and Disneyland, you know, like oh all these different countries are represented. Um, another example that they I used was like Cherry Coke. And, like, no cherries died in the production of Cherry Coke. Like, <laughs> they, it, like it, it's like the taste of cherries. It reminds me of cherries. And then I drink it for a while, and then I eat a cherry, and I'm, like, really disappointed with this fruit that's, like, tart and doesn't taste like Coke and isn't carbonated. And so it's, like, really distant from the original thing. So hyperreality, we've got these images that no longer truthfully reflect objects. Images become new and better objects objects that we can never reach and that we can never have. And the promise that we could have them, the suggestion that it's possible, leaves us empty on the inside and always striving for more and reaching for more. Something that's not covered in the book um, because it was written in 2008, is influencers. Um, so there were no YouTube influencers in 2008, and now they're everywhere. Oh, the influencers. And um, these are people who, they're, they make a living through, like, I mean, we, we might have called it native advertising a little while ago, right? Like the movie star is holding the Coke when she's going about her regular life, and you think, oh, if I drink the Coke, I'll be like the movie star. But now we have YouTube people. It's like, here I am on my channel, and, you know, it starts out, like my favorite ones, they clean their houses and they like she's like here I am as a mom of a toddler and here's my cleaning routine and that kind of stuff and then like eventually they like meet with some success and so then what was a working mom like she's a nurse in the NICU and she's raising these kids and this is how she balances everything Well, now she's retired from her NICU job, and her husband is retired from his job, and all they do is clean their house and remodel and raise their kids and do fun things all the time because they've made enough money from that than they did from their actual careers. And everything that they have in their house, they've got a link to the Amazon so that you can buy to the Amazon. Oh, my God to Amazon.com, where you can buy the same incense or aromatherapy or the same mop or the same broom or the, I got an Ikea kitchen and this thing and this thing and this thing. And the suggestion is, if I buy all of those things, then I can have a life like that too. And it's not real. I mean, it works for a few people. Like, that's the thing about celebrity, right? Like, it works for a few people. But everybody couldn't have that kind of a life. So we have these aspirational enviable lifestyles, hyperreality holds hands with consumerism. And consumerism means that us, we consumers, we must always be awake and alert and anxious about all the things that we're missing out on, all the things that we don't have. And if I buy things, then maybe I can have more of the success or the satisfaction, more of this wonderful life that's presented to me through the media. And it comes through lots of ways. Yours might not be a stay-at-home mom cleaning her house <laughs> or something like that. But like, we see this in so many ways. Another thing that consumerism does is it really elevates a discerning taste. And so that's where, and I'm sorry, hipsters, i got to pick on you just a little bit. That's where we say, like, if I buy the right things, I'm a hyper individual. I am so good at buying. It's not like it's not like this, like, nouveau riche McMansion thing. No, like, we're getting locally sourced, and which is good for the environment, and fair trade, and this special beer, and I discovered this band before it was cool, and I have discerning taste. That's my worth and my value, and that's where that comes from. So then we've got a guy who comes along. Um, Oh, sorry, right before that. So hyperreality sets these impossible expectations, and that drives us into the arms of consumerism. And that's how our modern world runs. So what does this have to do with friendship? Let's read from Mark Sayer's book. Even our need for connection and community in an increasingly disconnected society, is exploited by the consumer culture. Many today relate to each other not by ethnicity, family background, religion, or geography, but by a common loyalty to a product or a brand. For many youth, in particular, their potential to belong to a particular group is determined by making the right consumer choices. We find that products have become the way that we relate to each other and find people just like us, as cultural critic Daniel Harris explains. And so his quotation is this. In a fragmented society in which major institutions, like the church and the community, no longer play the same role of bringing people together, owning identical possessions becomes one of the chief ways in which we experience community, overcoming our isolation through shared patterns of consumption. Shared patterns of consumption is the way that our society would suggest that you make friends and build friendships. We saw this early, well, like a while ago. If you remember the commercials, I'm a Mac and I'm a PC, do you remember that? He's a PC, and he's a nerd, and I'm a Mac. I'm, like, this cool guy. And then PC fought back, and they found all these, like, adventurous skydivers and, you know, like, clever artists and all these other people. Like, I'm a PC, and I'm proud of my nerdy PC-ness, even though they weren't nerds at all. They were, like, backpacking across the mountains, and <laughs> there was, like, this big, like, fight of, like, I'm a Mac, and I'm a PC. And and the reality is that we're not Macs, and we're not PCs. <laughs> We're just people. We're people. We're not the things that we buy in our identity. It's not the shoes that we wear. And it's easy to see this and judge this in others, and then it's easy to get blind to how it happens in itself. In fact, when in this quote he says, identical, owning identical possessions, I thought like, not identical possession." Like, I've never tried to own an identical possession. And the Lord reminded me, not of like, a teenage time, which I was sort of hoping for because I could be like, hey listen to this story about myself as a stupid 16 year old. No, no. The Lord reminded me of, like, when I was, like, 33. I worked at this company, and our department was all women. It's, like, kind of advertising, purchasing kind of a thing. We we're, like, the Costco of advertising buys, if that makes sense. Like, we bought a lot of it, and so then we got big discounts. So everybody would buy through us, and it was kind of evil because it was pharmaceutical advertising. And I'm just, I'm really sorry. So anyway, there I am, <laughs> and I have a cubicle. And lots of ladies everywhere, we've all got cubicles, and my department was all women. And I, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an upwardly mobile person you know i want to like i want to be climbing this ladder and paying attention because the people who make more make more have better titles make more money and i wanted more money so i got on linkedin to discover, like, what was everybody's career path, and, uh, and they're, like, you know, most people, most of the ladies in my department, was, like, they'd work for, like, two years, and then they'd get promoted, and then maybe a year, and they'd get another promotion, then, like, three years would go by, and they'd get another promotion, but there was this one young woman, younger than me, her name was Jill, and this is a positive story about her, so I don't think she'd be embarrassed if I told you her first name only. Her name is Jill, and she got a promotion, year after year after year. She just, like, up a rung, up a rung, up a rung. Like, she had her stuff together. And she knew the requirements, and she mastered the skills, and she did all of the things, and so, like, she went from, like, associate so-and-so to to client buyer to senior client buyer to team lead to manager to director. Like, she just, like, boom, 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 boom. And I thought, oh, yeah, I want to do what she's doing, because she's, like, banking some money. And I need some money, because I have these kids now, and they expect to eat, and all those crazy things. So, uh, so so uh, I became friends with Jill and Jill had this interesting qu- quality. She would wear in like these really, really high heels that I could never copy and, um, and then when she got into the office she changed into slippers and wouldn't you know it, when I was at Target a couple weeks later, I saw exactly the same slippers. And they're like black, u- boot ugly slippers that I would never buy for myself. And I bought those slippers. As a 33-year-old woman, I bought the slippers to be more like Jill. And I was too embarrassed to like wear them at work because I didn't want her to like think I was copying her, you guys. So I wore them around my house, and I was like, I'm like Jill. I'm going to get promoted like Jill. I did not get promoted like Jill. <laughs> <laughs> the slippers did not meet my financial, did not guarantee financial success. <laughs> they did not make me a better professional. Um, Is just a funny thing, you know. And then uh, me and a friend of mine here, I'll just tell and Renee, we uh, both of us wear Crocs. Okay, I know you just had like a judgmental thought flitting through your mind, and I'm telling you that thought comes from consumerism, not Jesus. So let us repent. <laughs> And they're like cool crocs anyway with canvassy tops. They're not like the, the super ugly ones, which would also be fine. So, anyway, so Renee and I share like a favorite shoe. And uh, one of us always has like an older pair, and one of us always has a newer pair. And we're like, oh, you got new crocs. Oh, I'm jealous of your new crocs. And then like six months will pass. And then the other one of us will be like, oh, you got new crocs. Like, wearing the six-month-old Crocs. I want new Crocs. And we just, like, ooh, you ooh, you, ooh, you it's Like, Crocs is making so much money off of us. Because, like, we're not waiting for them to wear out. We're just, like, well, yours are, like, a day newer than mine, so I should get some. And, like, we know we're doing it. We know we're doing it. And still it continues. So, uh... So this, so hyperreality, it has infiltrated our expectations of friendship. That's the real, I could talk about hyperreality, I could go on and on and on, but hyperreality has infiltrated our expectations of friendship, and it has done so in service of consumerism. It has shown you friendships in shows and movies that are totally unreasonable. Like, for instance, and I know, like, articles, I'd, I'd be surprised if books haven't been written about this, Rachel Green in Friends, the waitress, how did she afford that apartment? there's no way. There is no way. There is no way that a waitress at a coffee shop can pay her fair share of an apartment. It's lucky she's going to have rich friends, and then she can hang out with more rich friends. And then what do you know? You know, six seasons later, she's like wearing fancy clothes to a fancy fashion job, I think. And and she's, and she's got a paleontologist husband or the shared child. I, I, I'm, I'm low on my friend's trivia, but I'm just saying, like, that wasn't real. <laughs> and for all the times that I've been waiting for Rachel Geller to show up, and or Ross Green, Ross Geller, any, I gotta stop this. Anyway, I just, I'm waiting for them to come. I'm waiting for them to show up. My beautiful friends, who are so smart and so funny, and who celebrate me and flatter me, and they're there for every birthday, and we have these little conflicts, and then we just sort them out right away, and everybody stays together, and like, there's just like, Six of us, and we are the group. And like some other people, you know, might you know come in and wander out occasionally. Maybe they have a a two-story arc because Jennifer Anderson's dating Brad Pitt, and he shows up on the show or something. But like for the most part, it's like I've got this cohesive group that never changes, and we're always BFFs forever and ever and ever. And they're not gonna come and be friends with us, you guys. They're just not. And this happens in all kinds of relationships across television. And in movies, and hyper-reality wants us hungry for perfect friendships that are easy. And because as long as we have that expectation, as long as that my entitlement to those kind of friends is inflamed, I'm not a very good friend to you, and I'm a really good shopper. If I go on an exciting vacation, I'll find meaning in my life, and then I'll, I'll have ways to connect with friends, you know? If I travel, if I have experiences, if I go to the coffee shop, if I, I don't know, all of these things. So what does Jesus say? Let's look at the story of the Good Samaritan. And I've just got it here on, uh, on my paper. We also have it up on the screen. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. And you've probably heard this before. Then a religious scholar, this is in the ESV, then just then a religious scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus answered, what is written in God's law? How do you interpret him? He said that you love, oh, this is in the message. He said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Love that, Jesus. That's a great answer. Um, Or good answer. Actually, Jesus is also like, I love that. Sorry, guys. How about I just read what's on the page? Good answer, says Jesus. Do it, and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, the scholar asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, and when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up, and he also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came upon him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "'Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back.'" What do you think? Which one of these three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the religious scholar responded. Jesus said, go and do the same. So let me give you a little peek into uh, what it's like when both people in the couple are pastors of a church. We just tell Bible jokes to each other all day, every day. That's all we do. So uh, my latest string of Bible jokes is my Oh My Gosh Jesus Bible jokes. And it goes like this. Oh my gosh, Jesus, you just can't spit in that blind person's eyes. <laughs> or oh my gosh, Jesus, you turn water into wine. Everybody's gonna get drunk. Or oh my gosh, Jesus, you can't turn over all the tables in the temple. Like we're gonna get arrested. <laughs> so, somebody, so the joke with this one is, oh my gosh, Jesus, you didn't even answer this guy's question. You didn't even you can't just like say like be kind to everybody. He said, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And, you know, when the religious scholars is asking this question, I sympathize with him because I'm thinking this guy, he's like, okay, love my neighbor as myself. I cannot, that's, that's, let's narrow the parameters. Like, who's my neighbor, Jesus? And if he's, like, me, it's, like, I'm hoping Jesus is going to say, your neighbor is thine person living to thine left and thine right, and that is all not the crossways of the street, or something like that. Like, I want it to be, like, two households, because people across the street, like, they're tough, you know? Or, uh, (laughs) like, I'm hoping to, like, like, let's really make this small, (laughs) You know, like, how can I achieve this? How can I control this? Like, it's this is too broad, too broad. Let's narrow it. And instead of narrowing the parameters, Jesus just opens it wide up and is like, everybody that you're kind to, go be nice to everybody. Go love everybody. And there's like this hidden question under the religious scholars Question. And, you know, Jesus is doing some other things here in this story. He's definitely addressing prejudice by the Samaritan being the hero of the story. And, um, and you know, like the, guy, the, the religious scholar is kind of trying to justify himself or get validation, and Jesus is just isn't going to play that game. But as I was praying and getting ready for this sermon, I think I have a question for Jesus, and it is, who is my friend? And I think there's a secret question underneath of that question. And I think that question really is: Where are the friends I was promised? Where are the friends that hyper-reality promised me? Where's my cast of my TV show? Where are my beautiful, smart friends who love me even if I make huge mistakes? I'm entitled to some friends. I was promised a jetpack and friends. Where <laughs> are my friends? I've given up on the jetpack. And. Uh, <laughs> And What what does Jesus say? I think that um, Jesus would say the same thing to us. I think he would say, go and be a friend. Particularly in Paul's letter to the Colossians, there's this really fantastic passage, and this one is actually in the English Standard Version. So Paul says to the Colossians this, "...put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience." bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. We're going to read through to verse 17, but you know, I think I just want to get out the Passion Translation, and let's read it in that one, because I'm really excited about the Passion Translation right now, you guys. So starting again, back in verse 12, we'll just repeat it. You are always and dearly loved by God how he starts without you, the righteousness of God, like we talked about last week. So robe yourselves with the virtues of God. Since you have been divinely chosen to be holy, be merciful as you endeavor to understand others and be compassionate, showing kindness toward all. Be gentle and humble, unoffendable in your patience with others. Wow, I am definitely not unoffendable in my patience with others. Tolerate the weaknesses of those in the family of faith, forgiving one another in the same way you have graciously been forgiven by Jesus Christ. If you find fault with someone, release this same gift of forgiveness to them. For love is supreme and must flow through each of these virtues. Love becomes the mark of true maturity. Grow up. Let your heart be always guided by the peace of the anointed one who called you to peace as part of his body and always be thankful let the word of christ live in you richly flooding you with wisdom apply the scriptures as you teach and instruct one another with the psalms and with festive praises and with prophetic songs given to you spontaneously by the spirit so sing to god with all your hearts let every activity of your lives and every word that comes from your lips be drenched in the beauty of the lord jesus the anointed one And bring your constant praise to God the Father because of what Christ has done for you. Gosh, that is so beautiful. And that is such a high standard. I can't do that stuff on my own. I really like how it says, Let the word of Christ live in you richly, flooding you with all wisdom. There's a special quality about Jesus, which is when we look at him, it changes us to be more like him. I was listening to a podcast that actually Mark Sayers is doing with another pastor in Portland, and the other pastor said something I thought was really great. He said, you know, you could try this radical thing. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to walk in the way of Jesus, tomorrow morning when you wake up, before you open up social media or turn on the news or open your email or anything like that, you could read a psalm or maybe a passage from Colossians and then sit quietly for a few minutes and pray. He said, like, just this practice would put you, like, in the top 1% of disciples of Jesus in the United States. We've just gotten so far away from the spiritual disciplines, and then our faith isn't working, and we don't understand why. And the reason why is because we're just, we're not taking time to look at Christ and let him change us, and really apply that and ask questions like, what would it be like for me to be forgiving today? How could I be unoffendable in my patience today? I mean, you guys, I'm a highly sensitive person. I'm easily offended. I just walk around a little pinprick and I think about it for hours. Like, this is not what God wants for me. Consumerism wants it for me because when I'm bothered, I like buy food for emotional eating or I shop to try to fill, you know, the gap with like my new Crocs or, you know, or or I plan my next vacation because there's That's going to change my life and give me meaning or whatever else. But God says, no, just come here. Just come close. Just come close to me, and I'll build these qualities in you. And that's where we're going to find that meaning and that significance. Being a great friend is the way to get a great friend. And I know that's not, it's like not a silver bullet, you know. It's not like an easy answer. But I think it's something that is real. And I think that's the thing that we really need. I was reading a blog that somebody posted the other day. It was a guy saying, like, don't be a jerk, everybody be nice, which is nice. Like, on the, on the front of it, I'd be like, oh, yes, this is very good. Don't be a jerk, everybody be nice. But there was one little sentence in it that I took issue with. He said, it's always easier, it's easier to be nice anyway. Like, people go out of their way to be jerks. And I just thought, I don't know. No, I think being a jerk's pretty easy for me. <laughs> like, I think usually when I'm a jerk it's because I'm being lazy and because I'm like not putting forth the effort for other people. Like being kind is a discipline that takes some effort, you know, and some intentionality. And I think that God just He wants to invite us into that in such a deep and a rich way. Because if you think about the people in your life who've had a big impact on you, my guess is that you're not thinking about their Crocs. My guess is that they even have them. My guess is that you're really thinking about their steadiness and their supportiveness and the way that they sacrificed for you. Jesus points to friendship of personal sacrifice. Jesus says there's no greater friend than one who would lay down his life for his friend. And then Jesus lays down his life for all of us, and he wants to put that in us so that we can joyfully and gladly and gratefully do the same for each other. So we're going to practice these qualities this week. Look at Christ and let him change you. Humility, kindness, patience, forgiveness. I would just really encourage us all to like take some time and think, like, God, what does this look like in, to, in, in my day coming up today? God, you know what's coming today, so would you lead me in this way? And we just really be dependent on God for all of this. Would you stand? We're going to take some time to worship God with one more song, and to pray for one another. And um, I just encourage you to come up and talk to God. I'm a little nervous about this sermon, <laughs> and if it didn't hit, would you please interpret that as like, I better come up and get prayer, because Kara really didn't seal the deal today. <laughs> and um, and if something, and it did hit, then come up and get prayer. So everybody get prayer, because either it did or it didn't. And um, let's just let God uh, wash our hearts and and cleanse us and help us grow and navigate this world that is complex and doesn't necessarily have our best interests at heart because we know that we can trust our hearts with Jesus. So if you come up to the front to get prayer someone will put their hand on you they'll introduce on your shoulder they'll introduce themselves to you and ask how they can pray for you and then they do all the work so it's really easy. So uh, let's worship God and pray together.